Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. gospel lesson this morning is found at the end of Matthew chapter 27, reaching into chapter 28. Listen carefully to God's word. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. As we come to this momentous story, the very keystone event of our faith, God, that you have revealed to us and given to us in your word, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. During the Easter season, you undoubtedly have seen the typical avalanche of articles in the media about Jesus' resurrection. These articles contain the great wide spectrum of the interpretation of this event that we gather to celebrate today. Some believe it was a hoax that the disciples pulled off by stealing the body. Indeed, we even hear that in chapter 28 of Matthew, that this is an ancient opinion. It's just a lie. Others believe that the disciples were mistaken, that in the intensity of their grief, they just thought that they saw Jesus, and so they were just slightly mistaken and disillusioned. Others are more bold to say that the church just fabricated this story. In an attempt to seize power sometime later, perhaps in the city of Rome, they made Jesus out to be something that he was completely not. And then there are others who contend that something inexplicable took place on that Sunday morning. That at dawn, these two women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection ran into something they could have never explained, nor they have ever even quite expected. They didn't know what to do with it. But what was told them was that a man entered into death, and they knew that he had died, and then he came out the other side. And this is what the church has always contended actually happened. Something strange, something unusual, something that seems non-repeatable, something that you can't exactly prove, but that God acted in new creation to bring forth a dead body into life again. But here's the thing about that discussion that went on then and continues on now that everyone agrees about one thing, Christian and non-Christian alike, that the resurrection is the key moment. And whatever we may believe about it, most people understand that the resurrection is the key moment of the Christian faith. And if it's not true, then the Christian faith simply collapses. And there's something better that we can do with our time. But then if the resurrection is true, then the implications are unthinkable. And they're so unthinkable that it gives us many, many reasons to resist it, not to want it to be true. And we see that the Jerusalem religious authorities were doing everything they could to resist it. The guards came, and they were some of the first proclaimers, preachers of the resurrection. They tell the chief priest and the Pharisees what had happened. 
And they were given a handsome sum of money to be quiet. They were to say that the disciples stole the body at night. This was the falsehood in which they were to cover over whatever strange thing had happened. And this helps us define Christian reality. And this is what's so important for us today as the church, because we live out our faith in that same contested space where there are many different opinions swirling about about what happened on that early morning. And some people believe it's foolish to think that a body came back to life. And Christians would absolutely agree with that, that this was unexpected. But they're simply saying that this is what happened. This is what went on before us. Because the remarkable thing that happens inside the Christian faith is that those early disciples continued on with the proclamation. You see, the scandal was swirling around them. The guards were paid off. There was a massive attempt to cover up. The chief priests, who were very wealthy and powerful inside Jerusalem, had their PR machine churning in order to cover up this scandal, something that threatened their very position, something that threatened their very power. They were very interested to silence this whole thing and bury it. But the early Christians, these disciples, they endured and they continued on. And so despite the best efforts of the religious authorities, things continued. And the question for us is why? Why did the disciples, against all of this opposition, at great danger to themselves, why did they continue? And why would we continue on with their tradition today? Why would we forward their belief? Because the controversy continues, and it continues to put us in uncomfortable circumstances and situations even today. And we discover at least part of the answer when Jesus greets these two women, Mary Magdalene and then the woman we know as the other Mary. He greets them at the tomb on the first day of the week, and he speaks very simple but profound words. In verse 10 of chapter 28, he says, Do not be afraid. Why did the disciples continue? Why did they press forward despite all the conflict, despite all the turmoil, despite all the trial that lay ahead? The answer lies in those four simple words, which is actually two words in the original. Do not be afraid. The resurrected Jesus, in his personal presence, brings about the death of fear. He did that then and there, and the personal presence of Jesus today, as he is the living Lord, brings about the death of fear even here today. This is his work, and it is why the church continued on then, and it's why the church continues on now, because we know the personal ministry of our Lord, who is living and is up from the dead, who reigns over all things now. And what's important for us this morning, in the brief moment that we have, is to consider two angles of this death of fear. What does it look like? to be freed from fear. Two things here. And first, fear dies 
because our sins are forgotten. You'll notice in verse 10 what Jesus says, do not be afraid, and then right after this, go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It's fascinating because Jesus is referring to his disciples. This was the group that he had summoned and called to follow him, who had done many miraculous things, and then suddenly upon the last leg of his life, Jesus begins to tell them that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, and on the third day he would rise, that he would be vindicated. And as we've traced through the last few weeks, we've seen that the disciples did not like this message. They could not understand it. They couldn't get their minds around it. Peter rebukes Jesus the first time that it happened. The disciples argued about who amongst them was the greatest. And then James and John begin to jockey for position and divide the whole company of the disciples. And then they proudly protest that they would die with Jesus. And then at the climatic moment when they had their opportunity, they shrink away in fear. They had said, we are able And they proved to be utter failures. Peter, perhaps the greatest of them. And yet on the other side of all of that failure, the other side of all the sin, the other side of all the fault, Jesus calls a family meeting. He doesn't call them disciples. He says, my brothers. Go call my brothers and tell them to meet me in Galilee. And this is notice that Jesus had put all of their failures to death, that they were gone, and he's constituting the family of God. He's gathering the church to himself. It's a church that's bound together in grace. Because you see, when Jesus rises from the dead, he cancels out the verdict of our sins. The way this worked in the Hebrew law court is when there was an accusation made against someone, there were two people in the court before the judge. And the accusation comes through Satan that he was going to take Jesus down into death. But for death to hold, there had to be a writ, a writ that explained the sins of the person. And Jesus was condemned and taken down into death. But then the judge looks on the actual person and knows that he is righteous, that he is innocent, that he was without fault. And so the verdict that was passed on Jesus was evacuated. The judge vindicates and defends Jesus. And friends, what the Bible invites us to do is to place our faith in that righteous one, in that one who is innocent and who no charge could be brought against, and that a new verdict is passed on your life because there is a writ on you. We have sinned and we have failed. We are like the disciples, but we can be restored and reconciled to God because of what one has done for us. This thing that was objectively accomplished by the work and the achievement of another, the one righteous one. And so the jury is not out for you. For those who believe in Jesus, we're not awaiting a verdict in the future. The verdict has already been announced that when God raises Jesus from the dead, he declares that he is righteous and he invites you into that righteousness as you put your faith and your trust in Christ, that he is the one who rose from the dead. He is the Lord of the world. He rules over all things. And this is the death of the fear of our sins. They've been forgotten that God gathers us as a family, that he calls us his own. Now, unfortunately, 
there is a deep struggle inside of all of us. That though we can hear this objective truth that a verdict has been passed down that's rooted in the accomplishment and the work of another person on our behalf, in the American conscience, there is a deep sense of unsettledness, though. And many of us struggle to receive this. And we live with a gnawing kind of anxiety and fear that we don't quite measure up, that we're not quite good enough. In the wonderful little novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain and all of his wit, <laughs> wisdom, and, and, uh, and just being heretical, he captures this wonderfully. He speaks of a day where Tom was rejected by a girl that he had a huge crush on. She says no to him, and so he, then he runs off into the woods, and in his despondency, he dreams about dying. And so he thought it would just be wonderful because Tom was thinking about how life was just full of toil and trouble. And then Twain says this, if he only had a clean Sunday school record, he could be willing to go and be done with it all. <laughs> and it captures so much about us that Tom was not willing to go because he knew he had a dirty Sunday school record. He knew that he was mischievous. He knew he was dirty and wrong. And friends, that's where so many of us want to place our confidence. This is what we want to hang up our sense of assurance in. This is where we want to find our verdict, that we want to find it on the interior, looking at ourselves, looking in the mirror. And the Bible says one thing very clearly, that you will not find your assurance there. Looking in the mirror, all you will find is your sin. That is the one unique contribution all of us make to this whole entire equation. It is the one contribution. But Jesus is the cancellation of that. And Tom needed to look outside of himself. He didn't need to look to a clear Sunday school record. And all of us who struggle with the fear and the anxiety of, does God love me? This is the first and chief place for you to look. It's to this objective event. Because if Christ is up from the dead, the decree of righteous has been established. That the righteous one is alive. And you can find that righteousness by placing your faith in him. And the verdict is secure, it's yours, it doesn't change, it's not vacillating. That you have an anchor and you have an advocate with God. Your sins are forgotten. It's the death of that fear. And Jesus welcomes us into a confidence. The poor in spirit, certainly the disciples felt their own poverty here. They had failed so miserably. And yet they were welcomed into this humble confidence in front of God. Jesus greets you today and welcomes you into that same confidence. Second angle on this death of fear is that fear dies because our future also belongs to Christ. As our sins belong to Christ, our future also belongs to Christ because we have to be honest that we live in a broken and a fractured world. It's full of uncertainty. And the disciples would be those who could explain that uncertainty to us. Put yourself in their place. After three years of following Jesus, they had left everything, and suddenly he's gone. And you've got to think that when they sat down with their day planner and their, their diary for the next week, they're looking at it going, what are we going to do? I mean, what exactly were they going to do? And then the Romans are accusing them, perhaps, of stealing the body. And so they had great uncertainty about their future. Where were they going to go? 
Were they going to be next? Were they be crucified? They're hiding away. They don't know what to do. And Jesus speaks this word, do not be afraid. And he doesn't speak it into a Pollyanna world where everything is together. Friends, he speaks it into the darkest night that you and I can experience. He speaks it into those fears that can trouble us. He speaks it into the middle of our trials. He speaks it in the hospital. He speaks it in the broken home. He speaks it in the life that has been shattered. He speaks it into our dreams that have just absolutely been crushed by the brokenness of our world. That's where Jesus speaks this freedom from fear to. He speaks a word against anxiety amidst the flood of our anxious concerns. That's where Jesus ministers. It's not in some detached environment. And the question becomes, why can Jesus do this? And why do we then receive his peace? Why do we receive this freedom from fear? And these words, do not be afraid, appear a couple of times in the Gospel of Matthew. They show up in chapter 14 when Jesus walks on the water. And it is an illusion. It's a quotation, actually, from Isaiah 43. I want you to listen and consider these words. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's a fascinating and fantastic illusion that Jesus is picking up for these biblically literate disciples. They would have easily put it together that the one who was casting out their fear is the creator who fashioned all things by the power of his word. And now he's once again acting. And he's acting as redeemer. He's coming to finish what has gone so wrong inside of his creation. And friends, it is that one who has all of that power and the creator who will not fail to redeem, who can say to us, do not fear. And this is why Paul, some years later, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, so all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Do you see the way that he reasons and his logic? That the creator will not fail you. He will redeem all things. And yes, there is trouble and trial in the present. But we stride forward with a confidence knowing that these things even belong to us. Because our Lord Jesus has overcome our great enemy. And our Lord Jesus will not fail to heal and restore the creation and make all things right. And so there is this abiding confidence beneath it all. That even in the middle of the evil and brokenness of our world, that God can bring all of those things together for our good. That that is the sovereignty and mastery of Jesus Christ as the living Lord who reigns over all things. And friends, this is the death of all of our anxious concerns. That Jesus doesn't nullify them. He doesn't ask you to put on a stoic face and pretend that they don't exist. But rather, 
he says that your future belongs to him and that he eagerly awaits the day that he returns, the day he returns to make all things right, to wipe the tears from our eyes, to make all things right and new. And friends, the Easter celebration that has sustained the church in the middle of all trouble and trial for these disciples huddled together in this room and then going out to a mountain to greet Jesus and for the disciples today as we live in our own controversies, as we live in a culture swimming around us with various different beliefs and different convictions about what happened on this Sunday morning, the thing that sustains us is the living Lord who says, do not be afraid. Trust him and know the freedom from the fear of your sins. Know that they're forgotten and know the freedom from the fear of your future because it belongs to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd help us in our weakness, that we stride forward in confidence, knowing that we are yours and all things belong to you in Jesus Christ, and therefore they belong to us. And so would we know our sins are forgotten? Would we know that our future is wrapped up in you as well, and you will one day soon make all things right? Grant us this consolation. Grant us this comfort. Grant us this freedom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.